One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. In three, two, one. Seven things you don't really need to know, but probably should. I'm Jamie Easton. This, this is the Sunday Sun. In today's episode, NASA's DART makes impact with an asteroid. On the heel of the ongoing anal bead chess scandal, we take a look at the psychology of cheating, and there are some major breakthroughs for degenerative diseases. But first, after a five-year voyage around the Atlantic and Pacific Oceans, it was on this day in 1836 that Charles Darwin returned to England. The findings from this trip would lead to the career-defining theory of evolution. Can mankind deflect an asteroid on a collision course with Earth? Three, two, one. Oh my gosh. Oh wow. Well, now with more confidence than ever, we can say yes. Awaiting visual confirmation. And we have impact. A family for humanity in the name of planetary defense. That was the joyous sound from Mission Control as NASA successfully crashed its DART spacecraft into an asteroid. Dimorphos, the space rock that NASA sent its spacecraft towards, was no threat to Earth, but it was a test to see how we'd deal with one if that were the case. This is what DART system engineer Dr. Elena Adams had to say after the impact. I definitely think that, as far as we can tell, our first planetary defence test was a success, and I think we can clap to that, everyone. <laughs> so, <laughs> right? So, yeah, well, I... Yeah, I think the Earthlings should sleep better. Definitely, I will. Yeah. And how do you feel? Like the people working here, we're definitely going to sleep better. <laughs> the spacecraft, travelling at 14,000 miles per hour, crashed into Dimorphos, giving the asteroid a kick. This changes its speed by just a fraction, only about a millimetre per second, but this is enough to alter its orbit. Now scientists are monitoring this from Earth to see if it worked. Here's Dr Nancy Chabot. As coordination lead for the mission, she explained the next steps at a NASA media briefing. DART really is just the start. It's just the first planetary defence test mission. It was spectacular and it's accomplished and we'll figure out how effective it was. That's really what we're going to learn in the next weeks to come. All right, we hit this asteroid. Now, how effective was that at deflecting it and what would that mean for using it? DART's mission success is a huge deal. Whilst this asteroid doesn't pose a threat to us, it does give the first understanding of how we could prevent a deadly asteroid hit if we discovered one in the future. In terms of what we might find out in the weeks and months ahead, there's still a lot to process. Emily Lakdawala is a planetary scientist and shared her thoughts with BBC News. What we don't know yet is whether it successfully slowed the orbit of the asteroid moon around the main asteroid. And that's what we have to wait for telescopes on the ground and in space to uh, follow up and find out if the, if the, if the uh, moon slowed down in its orbit. We've a little while before we know the full impact of the mission, but the good thing is the asteroid NASA hits just a harmless space rock. But... That may not always be the case. There is definitely a large asteroid that will hit Earth someday. Now, whether that someday is in 
10 years, 100 years, 1,000 years, we haven't discovered yet an asteroid that is on a path that will definitely hit Earth. But we are still looking. There are large areas of space that we haven't even been able to look at very well, like the ones between Earth and the sun. They're hard to look at because the sun's there. It's very bright. And so while there are plans to continue searching, um, we don't yet have the practical ability to uh, prevent one of these potential disasters should we discover one. And this is the very first step. It's the very first experimental step in understanding what we would need to do to divert the path of something we discovered in the future. If you want to stay fuller for longer, have a big breakfast. That's what a new study from the University of Aberdeen suggests. The researchers were investigating the world of chrononutrition and how the food we eat is affected by the rhythms of our body's internal clock. Professor of Appetite Research Alexandra Johnston led this study and we caught up with her to find out the details. Hey Professor, thanks for joining us. So, to begin with, how did you and your team set about researching the question of big breakfasts? I was really interested in the meme, breakfast like a king and dine like a pauper, which is quite an old-fashioned saying, but whether this had an element of truth in terms of influencing our ability to lose weight. So that's exactly what we did was design diets that were a big breakfast in combination with a small dinner and a small breakfast in combination with a big dinner and each subject consumed both dietary regimes for four weeks. So what did you find as a result of the diet? So what we found was really interesting. We found that time of day of eating the largest amount of calories did not influence weight loss. The weight losses were almost identical over the four-week period. What was really interesting was that the subjects that consumed the big breakfast reported feeling more full and less hungry, so better appetite control when they had the big breakfast and small dinner. And that's really interesting because what we want people to do is extrapolate these results from the lab environment into the real world. And we know in the real world that people find it difficult to lose weight because they feel hungry. What are the implications? How does this apply to real life? Really what we want to be able to do is give a toolkit or dietary strategies to people to help them lose weight. And certainly our study results would suggest that having a big breakfast is a really good way of controlling appetite. And it means that you're less likely to snack or grab something that's high in calories later in the day. And it would be interesting to do some more future research to look at the mechanisms for that. Most of us end the day with a big dinner or we snack throughout the day. So the results are in contrast to what well, most of our eating habits. Does that mean that we could all benefit from breakfasting like a king and dining like a pauper? So I think when we breakfast like a king, I'm thinking about total amount of calories, but of course diet quality is also really important. So you do need to think about what you're going to be consuming um, for that um, big breakfast so that you maintain health goals. It is interesting that time of day potentially can influence appetite control, particularly for those people who are trying to lose weight. So what are the next steps for the research? So the next steps is that I'm really interested in shift workers and also time-restricted eating, which is thinking about the feed-fast cycle over a 24-hour period. 
because we don't currently have dietary advice for shift workers. It would be great to produce dietary-based evidence to support their health goals. Still to come on the Sunday 7, the psychology of cheating, and there's a promising new treatment for motor neuron disease. Last few weeks, a peculiar story about chess has been making the rounds. The world's top chess player, Magnus Carlsen, branded US team prodigy Hans Nyman a cheat. So how does one cheat in chess? Well, Carlsen says his opponent cheated using vibrating anal beads. Whilst Diamond strongly denied the cheating accusations, it did get us thinking, actually, not necessarily about anal beads, but why do we cheat? We wanted to know more about the psychology of cheating, so we asked an expert of cheating, not anal beads. Uh, My name is Corey Butler, and I'm a professor of psychology at Southwest Minnesota State University. Specifically, I I look at um, hyper-competitiveness and competitive attitudes. We heard Professor Corey's a bit of a chess player, so the first question we had to ask was whether he'd ever cheated in a game. (laughs) Um, no, I, um, you know, I haven't had the technology, I suppose. (laughs) I mean, people cheat in all areas of life, not just online chess games. But what drives us to actually cheat? Professor Corey says temptation is a huge factor. People have things that they want. People want to be able to get ahead. People want to be able to do something with less effort. And so there's always that temptation to cheat. Now, some of us are better at resisting temptation than others. But probably the majority of people at some time or another will will take advantage, will bend the rules, will will cheat uh, even just a little. And who cheats? Well, there are generally three types of people when it comes to pulling the wool over people's eyes. There's probably people that just that just never cheat, and they're probably a minority. <laughs> and then uh, you know, then we also believe that there's people that are really compulsive cheaters, really pervasive cheaters and liars, and uh, that that associates with a lot of antisocial personality characteristics and, uh, you know, that's kind of on the the dark end. But then you've got a lot of people in the middle who might be tempted, people who might occasionally, again, cheat, tell a white lie, bend the rules uh, slightly in their favor. And uh, and so that's that's probably the most interesting group and probably the largest group of people too. Universally, people seem to dislike cheats, but most of us seem to do it anyway. Why? Most of us have a conscience. Most of us have that little bit of a moral issue and um, that creates some barriers to cheating. Uh, on the other hand, uh, most of us will succumb to temptation even when we know we shouldn't do something. I mean, think about like um, eating too much junk food. I mean, I, I shouldn't do that. I don't necessarily want to do that. But sometimes we, we fall into temptation. So I think we can we can view it in that kind of way, a fa- failure to resist temptation, a failure to have in- impulse control in some of these cases. We're, we're taught not to. We maybe fall into it. Uh, I think that if we perceive that we can get away with it, that might relax our restraints a little bit and people might be more likely to uh, especially if they if they really define it as not really cheating you know and people are very creative thinkers and people can rationalize things justify things it's just this once it's not really cheating I'm just gonna do this this one time and uh, you know I think that's where a lot of that sort of more common kind of cheating 
maybe takes place. In the chess cheating scandal, one of the two players admitted to having cheated in the past. So how do cheaters justify their behavior and just keep doing it? The more we justify something to ourselves, the more we, we can. I think that when people start cheating, I think that uh, it just becomes easier. The next time's easier, isn't it? You can sort of fall into that trap. Scientists at the University of Sheffield have made an exciting breakthrough in slowing and reversing some of the devastating effects of motor neuron disease. It's a new drug trial using a type of medicine called gene silencing. Experts are stressing that it's not a cure, but they've described it as a real moment of hope for people living with this awful disease. Developed by US biotechnology company Biogen, the drug Tofersen targets a defective gene called SOD1, which causes about 2% of cases of MND. So we inject the, the medicine, which is called tofacin, into uh, via a lumbar puncture into the fluid around the spine. And what it does is lower the level of a particular protein, um, which is encoded by uh, a gene called SOD1. It lowers the level of a protein which is toxic and causing damage to motor neurons and the treatment has to be administered via a lumbar puncture every month. That was Professor Dame Pamela Shaw, a consultant neurologist at the University of Sheffield, an expert in the disease, speaking to BBC News. Although only a small proportion of the 140,000 new cases diagnosed worldwide each year could benefit from the new drug, experts on the disease have welcomed the results as a potential turning point. Les Wood from South Yorkshire was the first British participant in the trial, and over a period of a year, He's seen some amazing results. I've done many trials over the last uh, good number of years, and this is the first trial where patients like Les have been reporting improvement in their muscle function. Les has noticed after about 12 months in the trial, the discomfort in his lower limbs was, was gradually getting better. And we've had other patients in the trial reporting similar improvements. Some patients, though, just report a stabilization, that they're not um, deteriorating as they were before they went in the trial. Others, perhaps with more rapidly progressive uh, disease, still do change, but perhaps not as rapidly as they were before they went into the trial. So a very positive milestone, I think, uh, in terms of new treatments to protect motor neurons and to improve the outlook for MND patients. Still to come on the Sunday 7 is bad news for the Swiss Alps and a drug trial breakthrough for Alzheimer's disease right after this. You're listening to the Sunday 7. Follow us for your weekday news espresso or even try our island edition. It's in all the usual places. Swiss glaciers have recorded its worst melt rate since records began more than a century ago. They've lost 6% of their volume this year, far exceeding the previous record set in 2003. That's according to a new study by the Swiss glacier monitoring network GLAMOS. More than half of the glaciers in the Alps are in Switzerland, where temperatures are rising by about twice the global average. 
The mountains there lost about 0.7 cubic miles of ice in summer 2022. These losses are the results of exceptionally low winter snowfall combined with back-to-back heat waves. The melt was so extreme that bare rock that had remained buried for a millennia re-emerged at one site and other small ice caps have all but vanished. This is Matthias Huss, the head of Glamos. The results for the Swiss glaciers of 22 are really varying. We've lost uh, as much ice as never before since measurements started more than 100 years ago. Um, We've lost an enormous quantity of ice, much more than the previous record of uh, 2003. If greenhouse gas emissions continue to rise, the Alps glaciers are expected to lose more than 80% of their current mass by the year 2100. According to a 2019 report by the UN Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, many will disappear regardless of emissions action taken now, thanks to global warming baked in by past emissions. The new with climate scenarios that this situation would come at least somewhere in the future. And realizing that the future is already right here, right now, this was maybe the most surprising or shocking experience of this summer. Whilst we can't do anything to reverse what's happening, the report stresses that with serious global efforts to reduce greenhouse emissions, about a third of the ice could be saved. But if nothing's done, with a rate of acceleration that's been monitored, all of these glaciers will be gone by the end of the century, and Switzerland will look like a very different place. There's even more good news for sufferers of degenerative diseases this week. The results of a key Alzheimer's drug trial have reignited decades-old hopes that targeting a particular protein helps slow down the progression of the fatal brain disease. Drug makers Biogen and iPsycho say their experimental drugs significantly slowed down progression of the disease by 27% compared to a placebo. These impressive results offer the promise of effective treatment to desperate patients and their families. The report of this successful phase 3 trial in early Alzheimer's disease will change the landscape of Alzheimer's treatment in this country and worldwide. Dr Lawrence Honig, professor of neurology at Columbia University Medical School, was one of the investigators on the trial. What's significant about it is that given at the doses it was given, in the fashion it was given, over the time period it was given, and to the people it was given, uh, in this diverse population, it did manage to slow down the clinical progression. Functionally and cognitively, it seems they did better. And so that is a dramatic result, and we hope is the first step towards many drugs that we might use separately or together to try to improve the plight of people affected by this disease. Nearly all Alzheimer's drugs have stumbled in trials. Doctors are now hopeful that by removing this particular protein from the brain with this new drug, they can delay the progression of the disease, which affects an estimated 55 million people worldwide. We would be all very pleased to have a drug that reversed Alzheimer's disease and made people back to normal, but that does seem a little bit far off. We would even be very, very happy right now to have a drug that stopped it cold, and that even seems a little bit far off. But at the moment, we seem to have a drug, lecanemab, that seems to decrease the speed of progression. And I think that's an enormous advance in and of itself beyond the symptomatic medications that we've been uh, using to date. And if you're listening to this on Sunday, the 2nd of October, hello, I'm Jamie East, and around about now, I'll be running the London Marathon on behalf of Alzheimer's Research in the UK. 
Please, if you have any spare cash you'd like to donate or you'd just like to learn more about the charity, go and visit their website at alzheimersresearchuk.org and find out how you can help. Thanks very much. My legs will be aching round about now. Have you ever wondered how many ants there are in the world? Well, the answer is 20 quadrillion, and that's just a conservative estimate. For scale, that's if you had 20 million ants and then multiplied it by a billion. In comparison, the world's human population's forecast to surpass just 8 billion. That means there are approximately 2.5 million ants for every single human on Earth. Despite their tiny stature, their mass makes up more than all wild birds and mammals combined. This is all according to the most thorough assessment to date of the global population of ants. They're found in all different types of environments, but tropical regions were found to host more than most, with forests and drylands boasting more ants than urban areas. They may seem like pests when they arrive and invited to the picnic, but they're essential for the smooth working of biological processes on Earth. For instance, a recent study found ants can be more effective than pesticides at helping farmers produce food. And ants have also developed tight interactions with other organisms, and some species can't survive without them. With the amount of organic matter that ants transport, remove, recycle and eat, we ought to extend a little thanks to Earth's 20 quadrillion tiny ecosystem engineers. This has been the Sunday 7. Wherever you're listening, do us a favour and hit the follow button. We'll be back tomorrow at 7am with the regular Smart 7. Have a great rest of your weekend. Written, produced and published by Daft Doris.